You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. You could probably preach about 15 different sermons from that text right there. It's kind of like a fireworks show, like all different types of beauty, all different types of God's glory. You couldn't really see a lot of beautiful fireworks in Baltimore last night, but when I read that text, I think, wow, so many directions that you could like point your praise. But this morning, I want to point our praise in one specific direction. Note takers, type A people, here it is, one sentence. Your life brings God the most glory, and it brings you the most joy when it's deeply woven into the fabric of the local church. Your life brings God the most glory, and it brings you the most fulfillment when you weave it deep into the church. And I think we can learn a whole lot about that from a janitor in Florida. If y'all know me, I like blue-collar people from Florida. (laughs) So I love the story of President John F. Kennedy in 1960 inaugurating something that is historically known now as the space race. So he ran for president. He won against Richard Nixon in 1960. Right when he came into office, he announced this ambitious plan that Americans, by the end of the 1960s, would have put a man on the moon. He said in a famous speech, we choose to go to the moon. I, like, want to do a JFK voice, but it's, like, not appropriate. He says, we choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And that line reverberated through history. And in that same speech, he said something else. He said, in a very real sense, it's not going to be one man, Neil Armstrong and the rest, going to the moon. It's going to be the entire country. It's going to be the United States of America behind them going to the moon. All of us must work to put him there. He wanted to get everyone on the bus for this long journey that they would take over the next decade to put a man on the moon. And so he said that. He got everybody real amped. Everybody started planning. They started building these facilities in Cape Canaveral, Florida. And so he comes down to tour this facility. And as he's going from like command center to command center, he's walking through the hallway and he sees this janitor out there sweeping up a pile of something, just like doing his janitor thing. He's got a broom. He walks over and says real folksy, hey, I'm Jack Kennedy. What do you do here? And the janitor looked him square in the eyes and said, I put men on the moon. That guy, he got it. That guy really bought in the JFK's vision there. He said, even though I'm sweeping up stuff in the hallway, my work goes toward the greater purpose. I am putting men on the moon by pushing this broom. And Paul is telling us that when we're welcomed into God's family and woven into the fabric of the local church, We're a part of something that's immeasurably greater than what JFK was pitching to people. Listen to John Piper when he talks about the church and the greater vision that God has for us. Most of us live our lives with far too little awareness of the stupendous realities around us. Most of us go through day after day and seldom feel the impact of the magnitude of what we're caught up in by belonging to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the ruler of the universe, And we don't take enough time to meditate on how our jobs and our home life 
our leisure, our church involvement, how each of these fits into the cosmic significance of the church. Notice he didn't say God's glory. Notice he didn't say necessarily God's plan for our lives. He said the cosmic significance of the church. And consequently, our lives often lack the flavor of eternity and the aroma of something ultimate. Oh, that there might be more people among us whose manner of life mirrors something mysterious and wonderful and whose words have a cosmic significance. Don't you want that for your life? Don't you think if you would have experienced the Lord, you would have said, wow, that is a man on a mission. That man is after something greater. So we're focusing today on that mission from this text. We read a big chunk, 13 verses, but we're circling in, we're honing in on verses 7 through 10. And the mission that Paul puts out here is in verse 10. It says, so that, it's a statement of purpose, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's huge. So we're going to take a little bit of time and talk about it. But the mission of the church is to display the intricate wisdom of God before the hosts of heaven, beyond the ends of the earth, to everything that God has created. And so that's why our point today is that your life brings God the most glory, and you'll get the most fulfillment out of your life when you just go all in and weave your life into the local church. So three points. They all start with the same letter. You know, predictable stuff around here. We're going to follow Paul through the text as he sees believers, one, welcomed into the family of God, two, woven into the fabric of the local church, and three, ultimately, as we all work together, we become a witness to heaven through our involvement in the local church. So number one, we get welcomed into God's family, verse eight. So when we see verse eight, we're basically walking in like mid-worship, like on Paul here. You ever walk in and somebody's got the music turned way up and they are jamming out and they're like, oh gosh, didn't expect to see you there, you know? Don't you love like on Sunday morning when everybody's like really, really getting their praise on and you can see like they don't care what they sound like. They're just laying it all on the line. They're just, there's freedom. You know, the people that feel the freedom to kind of like shake it out a little bit, to really get a little charismatic for Jesus. There was a, there was one of my, um, one of my old pastors said that there was a lady that used to stand in the back of his church, and when she was really, really thankful for something, she would like, she'd do jump rope for Jesus. She'd just be in the back jumping rope for the Lord, and that's just what she did. That's how she like showed God praise. Let me, let me ask you this. Have you ever like looked to the left, looked to the right, looked ahead of you, and you see like one particular person, and you say, they are praising hard because of this. I hang out with them. I know what they're going through. I know like the victory that just happened in their life that they thought would never, ever come to fruition. That's why there's a little extra praise this morning. I know why they're giving God praise. Or maybe I know they've really been studying this one particular aspect of God, and any time you like bump in, into them on the street and talk about what they're reading, like they are telling you this one part of God that they're super thankful for. Maybe that's what's like welling up in them. And they're just super thankful for God's faithfulness, for God's sovereignty, for God's provision in the Old Testament. You know that there's like one thing that there's like, it's their hobby horse. So verse eight, 
Paul is like really praising hard for this reason. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That phrase in verse 8, that's for the whole sermon series. We could just like, you know, archive this graphic and just talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ because they're unsearchable. Like that word literally means inexhaustible or bottomless. Don't y'all love the word bottomless? I mean, it's Sunday. It's brunch day, right? (laughs) Bottomless mimosas, within reason. We're Christian people here. Bottomless soup, salad, and breadsticks at the Olive Garden, right? Anyone too classy for the Olive Garden here? No? We love one person. Mark is way too classy. There we go. Okay, we're pro-breadstick. Okay. Bottomless things are amazing, aren't they? And when we try to understand the bottomless riches of Christ, it's like pulling out your phone and trying to scroll to the bottom of your newsfeed. You're just never going to get there unless you lose service. It's like, it's like trying to watch everything on Netflix, which you probably tried to do in the last week, just streaming and streaming and streaming every episode of Gilmore Girls, like three times. It's an amazing thing, and you never get to the end of it. And trying to understand the riches of Christ is just like that. Paul is saying, if you gave every ounce of your energy and your attention to saying, how good is God? How unsearchable are his works toward us in salvation? You could spend your whole life, and you wouldn't even get close. There are people that devote their lives to studying the attributes of God and filling divinity libraries and seminaries, and they don't even scratch the surface of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And earlier, in the, in the chapter before, Paul says, it's going to take eternity for God to completely show you this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, he says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So when we get to heaven, we're going to be continually searching and searching and searching and being fulfilled by new parts of God, and we'll never get to the bottom of it. Isn't it crazy that we forget that sometimes? Like, Sometimes I get bored with the truth that I know about God. It's not that I, like, have this soap opera amnesia and I forget, like, the actual facts about who God is and why that matters, but I get bored with it. I get more stirred up by something else, by something that feels more exciting to me, maybe feels more valuable to me. I get more excited about the new Knives Out movie that I get to watch that just came out on Netflix. And then I look to the truths of Scripture and I say, I know it. I mean, I kind of I got all the details. Like, do I need another truth? Show me another truth, God. Paul says his riches are unsearchable. And really, that can challenge us to keep pressing in to those truths that we know about God, to keep looking at them from new angles, with new experiences that God has given us. We'll never, ever run out of reasons to worship. I mean, Paul didn't. Paul was so worked up about this stuff. And we could see that not only was he excited about it, but he was humbled by it, overwhelmed by the truth of it. And that's what happens when we really encounter God's Word, right? Sometimes we get around theology and it puffs us up. But Paul experiences God in a way that makes him feel really, really small 
and really, really worshipful. Look down at verse 7. Paul says he's only able to see the unsearchable riches of Christ because, quote, it was a gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. And then in verse 8, he says, even though I'm the least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to be able to share the gospel. And, you know, the more that you read Paul and the more that you see his ministry, you see this is a theme for him. The better he gets to know Jesus, the more he's aware that he doesn't deserve the grace that God's given him. But the more confident he gets at the same time. The gospel does a weird counterintuitive thing, doesn't it? It highlights our weaknesses, but it puts them in perspective that gives us gospel confidence. The more Paul understands and believes the gospel, the more he's able to be honest about his weaknesses and even end up boasting in them because the gospel is bearing the weight of his sinfulness. Some of y'all might be saying, what the heck is this guy talking about? None of this this lines up to me. So I have a chart. I love charts. I'm a nerd. Can we throw (laughs) up this chart here? So this is what happens as we continue to love the Lord and we continue to walk with Jesus. Sometimes it's helpful to think of it this way. So God makes us alive, and then the longer we walk with Jesus, we get this diverging reality. The more we study God's Word, the more we like are honest about our own shortcomings and weaknesses, the more we see a gap opening up between how good God is and how weak we are, and how prone we are to failing, and how prone we are to walking away from Jesus and being more excited by other things. And you know, the wider that that gets, if there wasn't the gospel in between, there would be something like structural failure, right? So the wider we get, the more we would actually understand if there was not the cross in between, the knowledge of God holding us up, imputing his righteousness to us, if there wasn't that bearing the weight, then we'd never be able to understand what reality is. And that's what Paul got. The longer he lived, the more he realized that he was worse than he thought he ever could be, and that God's grace was so much sweeter than he ever thought it could be. You could see that as he continues writing. So look at this, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. There's like a downward progression of Paul's view of himself. He says, For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And then just a couple years later, he writes the verse that we had today, Ephesians 3, 8. I'm the least of all the saints. And then just a couple years after that, he writes to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. This guy sees his brokenness, yet he is so confident and joyful. Like, without the Lord, if you saw someone that was like, I am a wreck, and I'm so happy about it, <laughs> you'd get him a weighted blanket <laughs> and a cup of hot tea, and you'd say, sleep it off, man. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but he is so rooted in the gospel that he's able to be confident in reality. Praise God that Jesus shoulders the weight of that, right? He holds us up. And he brings us into the family of God, which that's what he's rejoicing about. Even though I'm the least of all the apostles, I'm seeing this truth, that Gentiles are being welcomed into the family of God. So here's our first point here, welcomed into the family of God. 
And then not only are people welcomed into the family of God, they're woven into the same church, woven into the fabric of the local church. So he was talking about a mystery that's being revealed. And that mystery is not necessarily that Paul would save any non-Jewish people, because if you read the Old Testament, it's everywhere. You can see, God says, I will make my name great beyond the borders of Israel. So that's not a mystery, but the mystery that was being revealed to people was that God would put those folks into the same church, reconciling all these walls that had been built up, reconciling all these old hurts, all this unforgiveness that had built up over time, all this blatant racism and things that have been assumed about other people. For generations, God would choose to break that down at the cross and put them into the same church for a purpose. So he's weaving them in. Let's look at that. God's grace through Jesus is putting all these people in the same place. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So in our passage this morning, Paul was kind of using shorthand for all of that, because he'd already said this to the Ephesian church. But he said, praise God that once we were outside and we've been brought in. Once all that God had ever promised in the Old Testament was not theirs and was not ours. The Ephesian people were excluded from everything that God promised. And don't we all hate FOMO? Y'all know what FOMO is? Kind of a dated term now, the fear of missing out. What I did not have on New Year's Eve as the parent of a toddler, I'm like, y'all go do your own thing. That's fine with me. <laughs> like, being on the outside of something is a painful thing. And Paul said that being on the outside of God's promises was making the Gentiles and the Ephesians hopeless. He was telling them in love that if they didn't have Jesus, they didn't have anything. And maybe they didn't even realize what was causing the hopelessness, but everything else that they were trusting in, that they were building their life up on, was not going to be able to hold the weight of their brokenness and their need for a Savior. And before this point in time, the Gentiles found themselves on the outside of that hope. And that includes everyone in this room that's not ethnically Jewish. There was no clear path for them. There was no knowledge of how to be on the inside of God's promises. But then in the next verse, you see this glorious little three-letter word, right? But, heard, heard someone say something else about that word. Some of the best, best buts are in the Bible, right? It's a beautiful thing to see this hinge point in the text. You were on the outside, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's a beautiful truth. Because Jesus stood in our place, died the death that we deserve, and got up from the grave and gives us his new life as a gift, everyone has the same access to the same promises that Israel did. Now they could see that when the psalmist said, the Lord is my shepherd, or in tough times when Israel could say, God is my refuge and my strength, my ever-present help in times of trouble, the door to that fortress was open to them now. It's a beautiful thing. And the gospel was for every tribe and tongue, just like that gospel is for every single soul in Canton and Highland Town, in Pasadena, 
and maybe Mount Vernon. Who knows? <laughs> to every race, income, and education level, to every Gen Xer in the room, to every millennial in the room, to every whatever comes after millennial, Gen Z, <laughs> something, every political affiliation, even like the other one that you don't agree with. Like the gospel is available to everyone. The gospel is available to the people that shatter your car windows and steal your packages. The gospel really goes farther than we can imagine. We all find ourselves, because of this mystery, on level ground at the foot of the cross. Grew up in church, part of the culture, makes sense to me, I feel like an insider. The ground is level for you because you can't ride it on your parents' coattails. And God still says, believe, surrender, trust. For a person that's never heard the word before and saying, what is this? I can't even put this into my cultural box. The Spirit will make up the difference. God really does level the ground. But it gets even better. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Sometimes it's so easy to skip over this because we say, like, isn't God good that he saved me? Me, me, me. I am on a walk with Jesus, me and Jesus, holding hands on the beach, walking out into the sunset. Like, we have a real me and Jesus mentality, but when we study the text, we see that God is saving us and then placing us into a family. When God saves us, we don't just get new life. We swap jerseys with Christ, and we end up on Team Jesus. And that's what this verse is saying. It's saying, hey, new believer, even though you were just outside God's kingdom, and even though you may not even look or talk or walk any different than anyone else, because of God's goodness and mercy toward you, you have the same citizenship as anyone else in the family of God. No one gets into the kingdom with some limited visa that they have to renew over and over and over. No one's sitting in God's church and God's kingdom saying, maybe it won't get renewed the next time. Everyone is a full-fledged citizen and member of God's household. Isn't that good news? We don't have to worry about whether God's going to cast us out, whether that next dumb thing will be the thing. God's grace is so extensive. And you know, when we really love Jesus and want to be like him, even our cultural differences, they're not nearly as overwhelming or intimidating because we really just want to know Jesus better and we want that for them too. We know that there's equity in the church and that discipleship doesn't look like the things that we might think are important. We can look at a surgical resident that is a new believer and we can look at a cashier at Shake Shack that knows the Lord deeply and say, hey, Shake Shack cashier, show this guy what it's like to follow Jesus. One of our African sisters can disciple a hillbilly from the heart of West Virginia, reaching across cultural boundaries and reaching into redneck culture for the glory of God, showing, it, showing us what it's like to really trust the Lord in a huge way. The gospel has a way of breaking down those barriers. And I'm so glad that that happened for me, because if I was just saved by the Lord and then not placed into a church family, I have no idea what would happen in my walk with the Lord. I'll just tell you a little bit about my story. Uh, I became a Christian um, at 14, which makes me super thankful for what Blake's doing in the youth ministry, because I walked into a youth group thing on a Wednesday night, and people were like, 
eating chicken wings and like doing this American gladiator thing like that I don't even understand. And people were being all kinds of wild and weird in this place. And I was super uncomfortable and had never been to a church before, not like that. And I heard the gospel for the very first time that it ever made sense. Even though I grew up in the deep south, where the gospel was like Hobby Lobby written everywhere, all over the house. Like the Spirit had never done anything in my heart until that night. And I was so confused when I became a Christian. Like I knew that God wanted me to trust Him. I knew I had heard the word and my heart couldn't help but say yes. But what do I do next? Am I supposed to read this book? The words are really weird. I don't understand them. Am I supposed to come back next time? Is this like a like a pit stop? Am I done because I'm a Christian now? Should I come back next week? I have no idea. So I needed God's family to step in. This guy, the very next time that I ever came back, I was like, I guess I should be here. And this guy named Barry just came over and said, hey, it looks like you don't know anybody, like, but there's a space for you here. And so for the next years, through middle school and high school, I found myself woven into a group of people that felt like the new family of Jesus for me. I, I thought about my future after high school in a different way because of this family. Whenever I was thinking about the next steps, they would run it through the scriptures. Whenever things were, were crazy at home, they would say, what does the gospel have to say about this? And there was such security from having a new family in Christ that acted just like God designed the family. And sometimes I find myself wondering what would have happened if I didn't have them. What sort of relationships would I have gotten into? What step would I have taken after high school? Would I have been resilient enough through challenges if people weren't there to hold up my arms? God has made us to be interconnected and not to do this thing on our own, which is why we really want your involvement in a church for your own spiritual good. If it's RCC, that's great. If it's somewhere else that believes and loves the scriptures, that's great. But God has designed you to be woven into a family, to be woven into the work that God's doing in the local church. There's a really, really easy way to do that. If you haven't taken the first step yet, we try to make it as easy and simple as possible for you. There's a class called RCC 101. It happens about every five, six weeks, and our next one is on February 5th. So, yes, H.E.'s like the resident cheerleader. I love it. She's so hyped up. So February 5th, right after our second service, we're having RCC 101, and that's a chance for you to really see what our church is like, to really talk to some of our leaders, and to really say, like, what's it look like if I would go all in and be a part of a church family? Tim Keller says it this way. He says... If I threw a thousand threads onto the table, they wouldn't be a fabric. They'd just be threads lying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when each one has been woven over, under, around, and through every other one. The more interdependent they are, the more beautiful they are. The more interwoven they are, the stronger and warmer they are. God made the world with billions of entities, but he didn't make them to be an aggregation. Rather, he made them to be in a beautiful, harmonious, knitted, webbed, interdependent relationship with one another. God's made you for this, and we really want that for you.
So we see God is welcoming us out of the fringes into the family of God, and we also see that he's woven us into the fabric of the church, and we get joy, and God gets more glory from that. But that's not an end in and of itself. God has made us to be in the church so that heaven would know more about God. That's our last point for today, a witness to heaven. So we'd have to worship with Paul as he showed us how amazing it is that God's bringing people from every tribe and tongue into the family of God. But God is doing something remarkable through the church, and it's so much more than like, hey, come to the small group that meets after Sunday. It's like he is changing the universe by the work of every unremarkable, normal, routine church all throughout the world. So let's read chapter 3, verse 9 again. He says, this is the why behind God making the church. Paul says, God has made the church to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the church is being used in a literally spectacular way. It's a spectacle for people to watch, and as they watch, they learn more about the character of God as they see the faces and the interactions of the people in his church. John Piper says it this way, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. John Stott puts it this way, if we think of the world as a theater, God as the director, and the audience as the host of heaven, meaning the angels and demons, the, the play is the manifold of wisdom of God, and the actors are the members of his church. So that's, that's the way that we're going to look at this. God is doing something for the, for the world to see through his church. So let's look at it through that lens, starting with the audience, and going all the way down to the part that we play in it. Number one, the audience is the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is not what you expected to hear on New Year's Day, probably. We're going to talk about supernatural beings and how they observe what's going on in the church. Might sound a little weird to you, but I mean, because we preach the Bible, we're just like trucking right through it. So this is why we preach through the Bible, because we would probably get to a topic like this and be like, what? Okay, next. Like, but like, because God's Word says that, we, we need to like dive deep into why it's saying that. So if we're going to believe that the Bible is completely true, we got to come to terms with the reality that there is a real spiritual world out there that's beyond what we can hear or see. There's a lot of details that we're not sure of, but the Bible really is clear that angels and demons are a reality. And Paul is clearly saying here that God uses his church, every diverse, complex, messy thread of his people, to weave a beautiful masterpiece that God is showing to the angels. And why does this matter? 
why is Paul going here? Isn't Paul like teaching us something and then this sounds kind of like out of left field? He's shown us because everything exists for the glory of God. God gets the most glory possible from every part of his creation, and that includes the angels. Piper continues to say, the church exists so that angels would stand in awe of his wisdom. God displays his wisdom in history so that the worship of heaven would be white hot with admiration and wonder. The good angels never fell into sin and, not, and only marvel at the wisdom of God's grace from the outside. No angel will ever sing, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They're not wretches. They've never been lost. This is our song and our joy, and they can never sing it or know it. And we've thought about that before, but look at that last line. God wanted them to see it. And as the church gathers, and as the church does its thing in all of the fits and starts and messes that humans create, the angels observe new things about God. Paul's saying, when the church worships, the angels get down real close and they look so that they can learn about God's grace. When a group of ladies gets together in a stoop group and says, man, some things are great, but some things are like super tough. And I'm not sure that I have what it takes to keep going in this crazy job because it just keeps on coming. And I want to give God glory, but I don't think I've got it in me. Like, I honestly want to quit. Would you just pray that I don't quit? <laughs> and another lady gets up and says, man, like, I love my child so much, but the behaviors that are happening right now, I don't even know how to make sense of them. And I don't even know what imaging God looks like and being like Jesus. I don't know what it looks like in my situation, and I don't know that you can tell me, but I just need some help. And they, and then they close in prayer and they say, God, we do not have what it takes to get through this situation, but we know that you're so faithful and we're trusting you and we're just saying, God, would you help us? God, we want to be like you. Would you make up the difference in our weakness? When the angels see that, they say, wow, God can do that. God can step in there. I can imagine them watching whenever someone brings a vulnerable person into their home, maybe brings a foster kid in for the very first time, and all of a sudden they say, oh, what a cute baby. Oh, what a hard thing. Man, it's really hard doing this. It's really hard loving mom and dad, um, the mom and dad of this child. It's really hard thinking about this child's future. I, I have so much uncertainty. And then the angels watch as a gospel community wraps around this person and says, we don't have all the answers, but we sure do have a casserole, <laughs> and we sure do have a listening ear, and we sure do have the truth from Scripture that says, do not grow weary in well-doing. Would you keep going? Because God will sustain you. When the angels see that kind of wraparound care in the church, they say, I don't know anything about that, but praise God. Look at how he steps in. Paul is showing us that our community, this community, when we do those things, we're preaching a supernatural sermon that just gets the angels hyped up about God. How do the angels grow in their worship? By watching us as we minister to one another. So that's the audience, the hosts of heaven watching our church 
And the play is something called the manifold wisdom of God. Isn't that a weird word? Like, who uses the word manifold that's not like a mechanic? I mean, like, the word manifold here literally means multifaceted, multicolored, intricate, complex. And so God is saying the church is showing a multicolored amount of wisdom uh, to the church and to the world. The only other time that a word like this ever gets used in the Bible is way back in the, in the book of Genesis uh, when Jacob gives a coat to his son Joseph. And that coat was a coat of many colors, so says Dolly Parton. It was a technicolor dream coat, right? It was a really special looking thing. And in the same way that someone would wove such a wide variety of material into that coat, God weaves people from all sorts of different perspectives, cultures, experiences into his church. That means if you're looking for wisdom, God says, look around. You might find it in a podcast. You might find it in a book like Gentle and Lowly. Those things are super helpful, but God is saying, don't overlook the wisdom that's found in the people in this room, in the experiences of God's faithfulness, in the challenges and the failures and the reconciliations. That's where God's wisdom gets proclaimed. You'll see God's wisdom when you really weave yourself deep. You'll experience God's wisdom in a visceral way whenever you allow yourself to be open to corrective conversations, like happened to me in my own stoop group and gospel community. When someone would say, hey, Tim, like, I see that you're really good at, like, empathizing with people, but sometimes I'm afraid that you might be, like, letting hard things slip because you don't want to, like, really weave, like, you really don't want to wade into the waters there. That's God's wisdom right there. Someone leaning into a hard conversation and saying, I love you and I love the Lord and I want good for you. You'll see the wisdom of God when people, when Lord willing, Jill and I, will see God's wisdom on display when one day we might throw an adoption party for our foster son and when friends from RCC uh, would show up at that party and say, God has seen you through years and years of ups and downs and we'll look back and we'll be able to say, he really has and he's really used you guys in huge ways manifold wisdom on display. That brings us to the very last thing here. The actors in this drama are us. Every single member of God's church is acting out this play. Isn't it incredible that God uses us at all? Let alone to do something so significant. We'll close with this. God intends to use ordinary, messy, small paintbrushes on the canvas of history because every minute stroke of his brush matters. Every bright stroke of triumph and every dark stroke of suffering matters. He is an infinitely wise painter. He knows what he's doing with your life. Not one stroke will be wasted. You can trust him with your life. Would you yield the wise hand that would paint with your life? Oh, what riches we have to give if we would do that. So God gets the most glory. We get the most joy, and our lives have the most meaning when we really go all in with the family of God. So often we spend a lot of time and effort trying to find meaning in ourselves, right? And not in the bigger picture. 
Sometimes I can find myself pouring myself into parenting, pouring myself into content, pouring myself into like planning the next cool thing to look forward to. Or sometimes I can find myself even like isolating, saying, you know, if, if I don't get too close with too many people, then the chances of the next pain, the next hurt could be minimized. But let me just tell you from experience, I mean, there's value in hobbies. There's value in a rhythm of work and rest, but it's not ultimate. It's not motivating. It's not why God designed us. It's not the kind of stuff that got that janitor at Cape Canaveral all worked up. Like, it's not a motivating purpose. Would you just throw away that lesser joy of the me and Jesus mentality? Would you just throw away that, that maybe thing that is keeping you from being vulnerable and transparent with your gospel community and your soup group, or keeping you from taking the next step with a church at all? Would you just look at how God has designed us and the world and say, man, it might be messy, but I'm just going to yield to the Lord. Would you just see what God does when we just trust him? Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this truth. And we thank you that you're so good to us that you would show us how we're designed and that you would call us into life. God, thanks that you don't um, play the role of just a, a scolding father telling us what not to do and, and waiting to zap us. God, thank you that you invite us into richer, fuller life. God, would you make this a place that is just so sweet and so tight-knit and, and, and just evidence of your grace. Would you fill this church with your manifold wisdom? And would you use every single believer's life to showcase what you're like and who you are? God, would you just help us to yield to you in your wisdom? Would you help us to take that next step in faith as we serve your kingdom and your church? Lord, would you just get glory from our lives this year and in the years to come? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.